All right, praise the Lord. Keep those guys in prayer. Right now we're in Jeremiah chapter 16. If you'd open your Bibles or navigate on your electronic device. Jeremiah chapter 16. Verses 1 through 21, that's our text as we continue to study through the entire book of Jeremiah. Our topic, God spells out the righteous lifestyle he's chosen for his prophet. The title of our message, Lifestyles of the Righteous and Faithful. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you're so good to us. You love us and you saved us and you promised to conform us and change us into the image of Jesus Christ. Regardless of our cooperation or lack of it, you are going to perform that work, Lord, but it would be better if we cooperated. And Lord, today we're going to talk about lifestyle and lifestyle choices because that's what is in your word. Lord, rather than make specific recommendations that uh, would possibly be legalistic and, and narrow, I pray that we would each have the maturity, Lord, to hear what you are saying by your spirit and look at our own lifestyle, gauge it by what you are calling us to be and to do as your children in these last days. Use your word, Lord. Fill our hearts with the wonder of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Do you happen to know what a nakation is? I'm hoping you don't, a nakation. It's a bear-it-all clothing-optional vacation for nudists. I give them points for the name, at least. It's not a vacation, it's a nakation, because you're naked. Now, vacations specifically designed for those in alternative lifestyles are growing in popularity. Cruise passengers who wanted to travel with others who shared their alternative lifestyle once were relegated to small groups among mainstream liners or short voyages on small ships. In recent years, however, cruises for nudists and naturalists, gays and lesbians, heterosexual swingers, and my favorite, cougars and cubs, have become very uh, popular and they've attracted so much attention and interest that those groups are able to book entire large vessels for themselves. There are all Christian cruises. Would you therefore consider Christianity an alternative lifestyle? Well, the loose definition of alternative lifestyle is a way of life considered unconventional or non-traditional according to the social or cultural norm. By that definition and factoring in that born-again believers are clearly a minority, biblical Christianity is very much an alternative lifestyle. Of course, we would call it the superlative lifestyle because it comes to us from the hand and heart of God. A question we might ask is, how different are we than the surrounding culture? For example, if you're in a group of people who are free to practice their alternative lifestyle, you're going to spot the nudist right away. Christians are told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ as if we were clothed with him. Are we therefore conspicuous for the way we wear Jesus? I want to explore some lifestyle issues that arise from the text. God had a very alternative lifestyle for his young prophet. Adjusting for time and place, we are called to live differently than the social norm. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God has a lifestyle for you to choose. And number two, you have a lifestyle for God to use. 
First of all, in verses one through 18, let's look at a godly lifestyle. Look at what God said to Jeremiah regarding his lifestyle choices. We're gonna look at verses two, five, and eight. He says, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Then in verse five, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. And then in verse eight, also you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. No marriage, no mourning, no merriment for Jeremiah in the last days of Judah. Now these extreme alternatives were suggested by the times in which he lived. He and the people of Judah were about to be taken captive by the Babylonians. Jerusalem and the temple were gonna be burned to the ground. Knowing that, it would have been foolish to go on living life as usual. There's nothing wrong normally with marriage or with mourning for the dead or with merriment. Nevertheless, we can see the signs of the times in which we live. And in any era, we're called upon to serve the Lord by fulfilling the great commission and furthering the kingdom of God. And so we definitely have lifestyle choices to make. We ought to choose an alternative Christian lifestyle. And so let's think then about how it affects marriage and mourning and merriment because that's what our text brings to us. What does the alternative Christian lifestyle look like in relation to these things? Well, let's dig in. In verse one, the word of the Lord also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in the land. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. You see immediately why it was better for Jeremiah not to marry and not to have children. Sons, daughters, and wives would die gruesome deaths. And it would, of course, be uh, uh, you know, terribly tragic uh, to see those that you loved treated this way. In normal times, you and I find there's a great deal of encouragement in the Bible to get married. In fact, there's a place in the Bible where it says it's characteristic of false teachers that they suggest you don't marry at all. However, it needs to be tempered by time and place like it was with Jeremiah. But normally, uh, you're encouraged to marry uh, and to marry uh, in the Lord. Now, are we, however, getting married in an alternative way that reveals our commitment to Jesus Christ? When you do, if you're a Christian, here's what you look like. You show that Jesus is your first love by refusing to be in a romantic relationship with a non-believer. The Lord who bought you, who loved you, who gave his life for you and rose from the dead, he says, don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers. And he warns us that that is not a good situation. It's not showing that you love Jesus with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so uh, the believer who is living the Christian alternative lifestyle doesn't get romantically involved with non-believers. You go against the flow of society by abstaining from sexual behavior until marriage because that's what God says to do. 
You show the world you agree with God's design by marrying a person of the opposite sex. You keep your marriage pure by refusing to commit adultery. And except for a few exceptions, like adultery and abandonment, you remain married for life. That is the Christian alternative lifestyle. And you see how much of an alternative it really is in today's society. All of those things are, uh, are torn down by our current society around the world. And so the Christian who lives that way is wearing the Lord Jesus Christ, is living that alternative lifestyle. Now, what if you have or you are blowing it in one of those areas? These things always sound like, oh, you know, I, I, I need to be perfect. What if I'm not perfect? What if I've already failed in one of these areas? Well, then I was thinking about that and I thought most of us have failed in one way or the other in these areas. And I thought, in a sense, we're all like the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight. Brought before Jesus, she was absolutely guilty of committing adultery. Regardless the motives of the religious leaders who brought her there to trap Jesus, she was guilty, she was an adulteress. She would have been there naked, standing before the Lord. It, the law said she should be stoned, and Jesus didn't really disagree with that. That is what the law said. She absolutely failed to live the lifestyle that God had chosen for his people, Israel. But after Jesus determined uh, that there was no one there who qualified to cast a stone at her because they were all sinners in one way or the other, he had a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with her. And in his talk with her, at the end of it, he said these precious words to her. He said, woman, go and sin no more. Jesus forgave her, told her to go. We would say in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, don't sin. And so he didn't just say, well, it's, it's okay. There's nobody here, to, you know, so don't worry about it. No, he said, no, you're restored. Just quit sinning. And so if we find ourselves in that situation, we look at that and we say, Lord, I, I'm not living the alternative Christian lifestyle when it comes to marriage, or I've blown it in one or more areas, then repent and start living it. So too often today, Christians say, well, I've blown it. I might as well go on blowing it until something better comes along. Uh, there is a place for repentance in the Christian life and for doing the right thing. And so that's sort of the theme of what we're talking about today. It's, it's you know, Jeremiah... Don't get married. Well, God isn't telling us to not get married, but he really is telling us to be married in a biblical way. Why? Because it's his way, but also because it's the best way, because God only wants what brings glory to him and good to us. Too many Christians have abandoned this marriage lifestyle. They look exactly like the norm in our society. We no longer stand out. We're not putting on Jesus Christ, and that needs to change. Verse five, for thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them, nor shall men break bread in the morning for them to comfort them for the dead, nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father, or their mother. Now, this is a, a listing of various funeral customs. There's a debate among scholars as to which ones of them are Jewish funeral customs and which the Jews had adopted from the pagan world. Uh, but basically, the point here is that uh, 
Prior to the final Babylonian invasion, Jeremiah was to quit attending funerals and cease mourning at all for the dead. By those lifestyle choices, he would become a figure to the people of what was coming, a time of great destruction after which there would be no time for funerals or the proper care of the deceased. And so Jeremiah, as God's prophet, he was conspicuous by his absence at funerals. And, that, uh, and in his mourning, people would notice that because he was a prophet, they would understand it was communicating a biblical truth to them. And the truth at that time was judgment is coming and it's going to be so bad that there won't be any burying of the dead. There won't be time for it. It won't happen at all. Babylon's going to destroy and ruin and burn carry away captives and the dead are just going to lie in fields where animals and birds are going to pick away at them. A terrible thing really to consider. Uh, And so Jeremiah, no mourning. That'd be hard. That would be hard. Jeremiah loved people just like you and I love people. He had family members undoubtedly that died, close relatives, far relatives as well. I mean, you, you might think of people that, you know, who are just wicked, but I'm sure there are many people in Jeremiah's life that he loved, that he would have loved to attend their funeral or even cry for them. And God said, no, that's not part of the lifestyle I have for you. Now, we know that a time of great destruction is coming upon our earth. It's the great tribulation described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It's uh, said to be a time so bad that nothing like it has ever happened nor ever will. And if God hadn't intervened, all human life would have been destroyed. And so think of the latest terrible disaster, tsunami or earthquake that took thousands of lives and imagine that happening in every city all over the planet on every continent and in the oceans all at once. And that's the great tribulation. We also believe that the Lord is coming for us to resurrect and rapture us before the great tribulation. And in fact, we believe that coming is imminent, that it could happen at any time. So the question is, am I living in such a way that I communicate, I truly believe I could be gone in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? This speaks to my values and my investments and as to whether or not if someone reviewed my lifestyle and choices, they would be able to say that I was seeking first the kingdom of God. Uh, for example, this isn't the, uh, you know, it isn't the greatest example, but it's something I remember from when I was a young Christian. How many of you remember what it's like to write a check? Do you remember anybody have a checkbook anymore? Okay. Checks are those things people write ahead of you in line at Save Mart that drive you crazy. You know, when you could just swipe your mark of the beast, uh, you know. But anyway, uh, years ago, I was listening to a guy. Uh, he was a fi- one of those financial guys that, uh, you know, they always put burdens on you because you don't have enough money in the bank and you're not paying for everything cash and, you know, and all that. But, you know, he said this and it stuck with me. I thought, well, I could at least see the logic of it. it it's not 100% foolproof, but I could understand it. And so here it is. He said that all he needed to do to find out where a person's heart was at towards the kingdom of God was to look at their checkbook and to see how they spent their money. Now, I think there's a lot of other things that we need to factor in, but it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if somebody looked at different aspects of our life, you know, the checkbook of our lives with the checks we write and some of the other decisions they make, would they be able to see evidence that we are living for Uh, the kingdom of God, that are we seeking first the kingdom of God, that I really believe I could be gone in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Because if I believe that, 
then I am living that and I am furthering the kingdom of God and so there needs to be some level of evidence. Uh, how much evidence? That's between you and the Lord in terms of where you would put that on a scale. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the idea here. Since we believe this is going to happen, are we living like it's going to happen or are we no different in life and lifestyle than our neighbors who are eating, drinking, and being merry because they, you know, they're just living life with no hope of, of the future at all. Then in verse eight, he says, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease from this place from before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And so Jeremiah was restricted from partying. His RSVP was always no. Whenever he'd get asked to a feast or a festival, he would say no. How do you party? Now I wanna keep this in the realm of your heart and its desires because it's too easy to get all legalistic about certain behaviors. But regarding your heart, would you say you'd rather be with Jesus, with his people, partying in fellowship with him and them, or are your merriments things that are more characteristic of the world? Jesus, when he was on the earth, he hung around with sinners, and he was therefore accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Of course, he was neither of those things. When he partied with sinners, he led them to faith. They wanted to be more like him rather than vice versa. And so sure, Jesus was with the common person. Jesus was with sinners. We need to be in the world but not of the world the way he was. He was accused of being a glutton and a, 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 a drunkard by association with sinners, but in every association he had with sinners, they marveled at his godliness, at his holiness, that no one spoke as he spoke. Men and women were saved. Their lives were changed for eternity. It wasn't a matter of Jesus going to the synagogue on Saturday and preaching an amazing message and then partying with his friends all week. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was a, a Jesus style of life where he, wherever he was, he was Jesus. And whatever he was doing, he was pointing people to the Father. Verse 10, and it shall be when you show this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Now, if you've been here at all for any of the studies, you know that these people were openly worshiping idols. They were doing it right in the temple. They were committing all manner of sexual sin. Uh, some of it had to do with the worship of these idols, but some of it was just on their own. They were carrying on all types of injustice and oppressing the poor and the weak of their society. They were even practicing, to some extent, infant sacrifice, human sacrifice, yet they acted surprised every time Jeremiah suggested that God was going to judge them. Now what that says to me is that it's easy to become desensitized to sin and to think that I'm doing 
at least okay spiritually. If you can be a Jew in the sixth century, be sitting in the temple, having brought your lame offering, be looking in the corner because there's an idol over there and you're thinking about the sexual things that you're gonna do after service in the presence of that idol, and two weeks ago you just offered your infant as a sacrifice and you're thinking, what's wrong with that? then it's pretty easy to be desensitized to sin on a real high level, and so we need to be careful. And so we need to take a look back. God said, look all the way back to your fathers, and just his way of saying, look back, judge for yourself. We need to look back and gauge our current lifestyle. Am I making spiritual progress, growing in personal holiness, or am I backsliding? Where was I a year ago in my walk with the Lord? Uh, I don't want to just give, you know, it's, you don't want to always just give out uh, exterior or external markers because people can certainly go through the motions of loving God and not even be Christians. But, you know, am I, am I spending as much time with the Lord as I used to? Am I going to church as much as I used to? Am I around Christians as much as I used to? Have my hobbies, uh, you know, deteriorated? Am I, am I doing more things that used to be considered carnal and fleshly, but now they've become acceptable? I mean, those are just some things to think about because our heart is deceitful and wicked and, and we lie to ourselves and we can think at any moment in our life that I'm doing okay. When in reality, I've fallen from someplace that I was once before. Backsliding, it's, it's, it's a very subtle thing sometimes. Verse 13, therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their land which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I'll send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they'll fish them. And afterward, I will send many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways they're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. First, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. They have defiled my inheritance with the carcasses of the detestable and abominable idols. So God says the Babylonian judgment, the captivity, it's inevitable. I've, I'm going to do that. He says, but there's coming a time in the future when I'm gonna bring Israel back from the north. I'm gonna send out hunters and fishermen, as it were, spiritual hunters and spiritual fishermen, and they're gonna come back to the land. That had its initial fulfillment after the 70-year captivity in Babylon when the Jews did come back to their land, but it has its ultimate fulfillment in the days in which we're living right now, when Israel has become a nation again and Jews from all over the world are being brought back to Israel uh, as God prepares that land for the last day scenarios that we read about in the Bible. Tucked away in these verses, of course, then, is the promise that God never abandons his people. Now, I think we'd agree that God has an alternative lifestyle for his children to live. I mean, that's, you know, if you did a man on the street thing and say, does, does God want you to live exactly like the world or different from the world? I mean, I think you'd be forced to say, well, no, we need to live differently from the world. And it's really a superlative lifestyle. I don't know, one of the devil's lies, and it's something we buy into, 
is that in order to be a Christian, I need to give up so much that's really fun and exciting, and I need to live like some kind of crazy person that, you know, some ascetic living in a monastery or something like that, and the Christian life is, you know, like being baptized in lemon juice all the time. Something fun comes, and I just, I can't. My eyes can't see anything fun. I can only watch, you know, Nick at Night you know, or whatever. And so, and, and so, you know, we have this idea that, that there's something wrong with the Christian life. Well, you know, I guess it'll work out in the end. You know, I'll, I'll give up all this stuff because, you know, maybe I'll have some fun in heaven. Maybe there'll be a mansion there for me and, you know, I can have some fun in heaven. But in the meantime, this is crazy. Now, but it isn't. It's, a, it's to be a superlative lifestyle. Now, we might disagree on some of the particulars at different times and in different places. In fact, we do disagree. This gets us into areas of liberty and what Christians can do and shouldn't do and all that. But I think we still have to say that our lifestyle should set us apart from the world in which we are a minority. God invites us to choose the lifestyle he describes in his word. And so I read his word and I allow his spirit to move on my heart and in my life and I live the lifestyle that God has chosen for me, and it won't be exactly like your lifestyle, but it should still be a lot different than the lifestyle of my non-believing neighbor. Now, if you can believe pollster George Barna, and who can't, even if these figures are low, they're, they're still gonna blow your mind. This is from 2005. The trend among Christians in America is to reject the alternative Christian lifestyle. And this is among Christians, not non-believers. He found, among other things, that only 9% of American Christians would say they have a biblical worldview. He doesn't say this. He asked them, do you think you have a biblical worldview? And only 9% of them said yes. Only 3% of Christian parents include the salvation of their children on a list of critical things to emphasize with children. The number one thing, good education. 3% puts salvation probably at the bottom of that list. 45% of American Christian parents teach their children there are no moral absolutes at all. And another 43% teach their children that there might be some absolutes. So this is, the, this, is the, uh, this is American Christianity. I would like to say that's the world in which we live in and that we're a lot different, but those are the Christians that we live among. We need to be different. We're not doing very well living the alternative Jesus lifestyle. And we certainly don't think of it as superlative. I know, I know, you know Christians' parents are thinking, well, I don't wanna have a biblical worldview and talk to my kids about sin all the time because then their friends will make fun of them. They come home and say, mommy, mommy, I want to do this. I no, you can't do that. They'll be disappointed. They'll cry. They already feel weird enough. I know. I went through that. Every parent goes through that. This alternative Christian lifestyle, which is superlative, it doesn't mean people are going to love you for it. They might ridicule you. They might think, what are you doing? Uh, you know, why don't you do this or do that? Why, why do you approach marriage this way when the whole world, I mean, this is stupid. We do it because we love the Lord and we believe him and we trust him. We need to choose this superlative lifestyle in more biblical terms. We need to be hot rather than lukewarm. Whatever times we live in, it's never a good idea to be just barely living the Christian life. Verses 19 through 21, you have a lifestyle for God to use. 
Chapter ends with an exchange between Jeremiah in verses 19 and 20, and then God in verse 21. Jeremiah says, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Jeremiah indicated that the people of God were to be so attractive to the Gentiles, to the non-believers, that they would recognize how empty and meaningless all of their pursuits on the earth were and turn to God from their idols. Very simple procedure. Gentile would look at his life, look at his idols, look at the things he was trying to do, find that everything was vexation and vanity, have that hole in his heart, and then look at the nation of Israel and think there are a people filled with some kind of unspeakable joy in communion with the living God who's doing amazing things among them. I want some of that. I remember feeling that way when I met Jesus Christ as my Savior. My life was empty and void and meaningless, hollow and shallow. The superlative life of Jesus Christ stood out against the darkness of this world. Being different from others makes a difference in that it allows them to see something beautiful about life and about living. You and I are the Jesus people see the life that Jesus offers them. And so in verse 21, God says, Behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Albert Barnes commented, he said, whether we consider the greatness of the national disgrace and suffering caused by it or its effect upon the mind of the Jews, the burning of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar followed by the captivity of the people for 70 years in Babylon stands out as a great manifestation of God's hand in his dealings with them. God saying, I'm gonna do this and it's going to change the people forever and, and it has. Not that all Jews are believers, not by any means, but commentators all say that after the Babylonian captivity, idolatry was never a problem in Israel again. God absolutely cured them of idolatry. And so the Lord is saying, my strong and mighty hand. Now for our purposes, I wanna look at the last phrase, they shall know that my name is the Lord. It's a reminder that God has chosen us He's chosen to use believers to reveal himself to lost, perishing sinners. It's by our life and lifestyle that they shall know that he is the Lord. There's a saying, I always get it wrong, you, you know, but um, you've heard it before if you've been in church any length of time. It it's, it's goes something like, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Now, words are necessary, by the way, otherwise people don't know what you're doing. But you should be able to preach the gospel by your life and by your lifestyle. And that's what Jeremiah was doing. In 1979, I was a lost, perishing sinner. I had a, a lot of the things, you know, I can't say I was at the top of the world, but I had a lot of the things that the world had to offer in terms of career and wife and you know, possessions and things like that. But my life was empty and hollow and shallow. Now, colleague of mine at the title company I worked for, drinking partner of mine, one day he got saved. I didn't even know what that meant. But one day he was luring, luring my drinking buddy, and the next day he was telling me about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't get too excited about that. In fact, the whole office ridiculed him. 
mocked him. He and his wife both got saved. We were attending Calvary Chapel. We made so much fun of them. They were the brunt of all kinds of jokes. It was terrible. We did it openly in front of them because we figured out that there was something about them where they wouldn't retaliate. So you could just be mean to their faces. And we tore them down for, a, 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 in my case, several months. Part of it was that I was hurt and wounded that I, you know, didn't have this person. It seemed like he was telling me that there was something wrong with my life because his life was different than mine and he wouldn't do the things that I wanted to do anymore. And so we had that kind of hate relationship or I hated him and, and until the Lord started to sh get a hold of my life, started to reveal himself to me. And then all of a sudden I knew that there was only one person I could go to, the one place I could go to understand what was going on. And somehow I understood that he would receive me, that he wouldn't punch me in the face, that he wouldn't even ask me to ask for forgiveness. And so I met with Lauren and we, he led me to faith in Jesus Christ. And then my life changed. And see, that's the way God does these things. He chooses to use the foolish things and the weak things of the world, you and I, he, he got a hold of somebody's life and that person sh shared Christ with you and they did it through more than just words. They did it with their life and their lifestyle. You could tell that there was really something different about them by the whole way they approached life. They had a biblical worldview. They were a lot different than you. You might have even ridiculed them. You might have hated them until in your hour of need, in your time of need, when that void in your heart got to where it was hurting so bad that you needed to fill it with something and you'd tried so many other things and you knew that they were all empty and they were still offering you Jesus Christ. I wanna be that person to other people. And that's what makes the Christian life superlative. It's fun, we have joy, we can laugh and you know, uh, it's not that we give up so much to be Christian, but we're not even on that level. We're on a level of affecting people for eternity. Where that you and I are entrusted with the gospel, the good news, to live it and to speak it in such a way that a person who if they were to die right now would perish eternally in hell could instead have their sins forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. That's superlative, is it not? Amen. Let's pray.